The new study out from the UK concerning vaccines, their efficacy, and booster shots. And for more on that, we're joined now by Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases specialist, who joins us here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Vaisman, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you being here. Uh, let's talk more about this study, which says that Pfizer, AstraZeneca, those vaccines begin to fade uh, within six months. Uh, was that expected, and do we know why? Yeah, it, it is somewhat expected. So we know with vaccinations, with most things, uh, the immunity does wane. And uh, the key thing from this study is that it wasn't actually looking at whether reinfections um, or hospitalizations increased, but that the, the viral loads, uh, the peak viral loads were higher in people uh, after this certain period, period of time. So they looked at it, you know, after this time, three months and then six months. So it doesn't necessarily equate to the fact that you're going to have more hospitalizations or deaths, which is the most important variable we look at when we look at vaccine. It could mean that we're going to have more symptomatic or mildly symptomatic individuals. So uh, there is some, you know, it's not the complete story from this, story, this uh, study yet. All right. Well, let's uh, yeah, delve into this a little further, because I know the Pfizer vaccine, for example, according to this UK study, says it goes from 88 to 74 percent efficacy. Is that concerning? Yeah. So I think it's likely that we're going to see that eventually over time we are going to have some awaiting immunity. The question is when. And the timeline that was outlined in this study seems a little bit shorter than what we would expect in terms of the real-life uh, efficacy that we're seeing in countries who are highly vaccinated. So this very, this number is it's not entirely surprising. And, uh, you know, whether it relates or whether it means that we need to have a booster that soon, that part is not clear. Because even if you have uh, higher viral loads, as was seen in the study, it doesn't necessarily equate to people having severe infections either. All right, because that was my next question. Does this underscore the need for booster shots and the need for them sooner rather than later, do you think? The, the, the evidence to support the need for booster shot is probably strongest in the immune-compromised group. As for the general population, the group that is probably the most likely to require booster shots sooner would be the elderly and the people who live in long-term care facilities. There is... Uh, there's data from Israel about the waning immunity among the older group, which is what prompted them to recommend a third booster shot, a third shot or a booster for that group. And so it's likely that we're going to have to do the same thing here in Ontario and Canada. Just a question of when the best timing is, and it's probably going to be in a few months from now. Okay, so we definitely will need a booster at uh, some point, uh, despite the fact, you know, if you've had Pfizer, you're still relatively good six months down the line. AstraZeneca as well, by the way, its efficacy goes to, the study found 67% after a a six-month time period. But obviously, as the months uh, go and tick by and the efficacy continues to drop, that uh, we're all going to need some sort of booster? Or is there another factor that could come into play here that might uh, render the uh, the booster, sorry, unnecessary for the immune compromised and the elderly that seems very likely to be the case in the near future that you know over the next few months those groups are going to need to be boosted as for the general population the question about whether we're going to need it certainly depends a lot on what's going on with the general population the general numbers of covid cases it seems now that the that the cases are going to continue to rise so the justification for getting a booster is more uh present it, it makes more sense now so perhaps a year from the time that the general population got the initial dose, there seems to be mounting evidence that that will be the case, but it's not yet definitive. 
so the the main factor in terms of your question is what what's going on in the, the general number of cases. If we're seeing a lot of cases, then it justifies a broad vaccination program to give people clear doses. All right. Does herd immunity play into this at all, and whether or not we eventually will all need a, a booster shot? Certainly, needing a booster shot it does affect the population's ability to suppress a virus. So we were thinking earlier with other strains of COVID, with COVID that we were aiming for around 80%, but now what's often quoted is 90%. And if having two shots uh, at 90% only offers some, you know, uh, less than, you know, 90 or 95% efficacy from the, from the disease, then perhaps then it does justify getting a booster. But again, the, the general population evidence for boosting is not clear. It's likely to become more clear over the next few months as we see what happens with countries that got vaccinated very early on, like in December and January. Yeah, and a lot of the uh, calculations you just mentioned there, I, I think, were made uh, mostly before Delta. And wondering if you could speak to just how much Delta, the Delta variant, how much has that changed the game and changed things? Right, exactly. So the initial thoughts, you know, way back before vaccinations were even around, is that we would aim for somewhere 60 to 70 percent. But then it seemed to go up to around 70, 80 percent based on the alpha variant that originated in the UK. But now with the Delta variant, um, it looks as though that based on theoretical models and now based on the real world data is that we're going to have to go even higher, up to 90 percent. So we have to achieve a very high level of immunity. And what does that really equate to? It equates to not having these cycles of waves of coronavirus where we have to restrict you know, public access to things as we have in the past. That's what it really the goal of this herd immunity is to try to get it to a point where we have small waves that are not really significant and affect hospitalizations. Joined on the line by Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases specialist. I want to move off this study, uh, Dr. Vaisman, and ask you about vaccine passports for a couple of minutes here as well, because uh, that has been making news, as you well know, for some time now. But uh, there is news breaking this afternoon that individual medical officers of health throughout the province have agreed to do their own vaccine passports if the Ontario government, the provincial government, won't do it themselves. We've seen the city of Mississauga this afternoon institute a vaccine mandate for employees there as well, joining a long list of uh, employers. Uh, When it comes to vaccine uh, passports, do we need, do you think, some sort of uh, standard or provincial standard? Yeah, I think uh, if we are in agreement that such a passport is necessary for some predefined list of places that there's high risk exposures and high high likelihood of transmission, then it does make more sense that this is outlined by a body that's higher up, so the provincial or federal government. That way we can have, you know, a more simplified approach, an approach that's standardized, an approach that prevents people from cherry-picking from one region to another. It allows people to, it allows the cities to have more confidence in the system so that they don't have to act alone, as opposed to having piecemeal kind of approach from individual companies or individual health units. So certainly coming from the province would be a lot more helpful. All right. And what is your take on the uh, mandates that have been uh, handed out so far? Because they've all been fairly similar that uh, to report uh, for work, you either have to be fully vaccinated or submit to uh, regular testing. Does that just medically speaking, uh, would that keep uh, an office and indoor environment uh, relatively or mostly safe? The thing about the testing is that the guidance around it is not very rigorous and using the antigen testing may not actually pick up many cases. 
the primary purpose of that mandate was to motivate people to get vaccinated such that they don't have to get tested. But really, it's like a stepwise approach towards the final phase, which would be to be fully vaccinated. And either you're vaccinated or you're not working in that place anymore. So, for example, that was the announcement from my hospital at UHN and then other hospitals as well very soon. So from a medical point of view, this test or vaccine approach is kind of a half measure. It's not great. And really, the, the next step is to actually mandate it full stop in high-risk settings. And just finally, how do we uh, get the vaccination rate uh, up? Because, uh, I mean, we've done pretty good in the province and in the country uh, overall, but we're beginning, if we haven't already, to hit a vaccine ceiling. Uh, how do you think uh, we could best go about uh, getting past or through that uh, ceiling? For example, we've seen, you know, other jurisdictions, other provinces in the country use lotteries. We've certainly seen that in the States. Is that something maybe Ontario should consider or look at or what do you think is the best way we could kind of uh, get through that uh, vaccine ceiling? Yeah, it's, it's, that's the million-dollar question. Now, how do you go forward? I think that the two pieces here is that, one, we have to look at which groups are not being vaccinated and specifically target them on the provincial or municipal level and to actually have outreach to them, which is what's going on in some cities in Ontario. So if you can actually understand why people are vaccinated, then using you know a more focused approach might be able to get you a whole swaths of people vaccinated. The second thing is that that kind of approach will only take you so far and there's likely to be a contingency of people who just simply don't want to get it. And so the second thing is you know you say well I, I can't get it to this number we can't do that. People are refusing so the next best thing to do is protect ourselves against the possibility of transmission. And the way you do that is mandating vaccination for many high-risk settings so hospitals, schools, congregate settings, for example, or high-risk indoor settings and maybe restaurants or bars, for example. That way you kind of squeeze them a little, squeeze those individuals a bit more and try to motivate them to get tested so they can participate in these things. I mean, vaccinated. All right. Got to leave it there for now. Dr. Vaisman, really appreciate the time. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Alon Vaisman is an infectious diseases specialist. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.